You're back on. Oh, okay, great. Uh, thank you. Who, uh, are you hearing Justin, it again? I feel good. Nothing. Yeah, no feedback. I think we got it. Yay. Good. <laughs> okay, nobody say anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now don't, don't, yeah, don't talk and ruin it. <laughs> awesome. yeah, talking, talking will jinx it. <laughs> All right, that was a healthy start. <laughs> yeah. We got, any, we got any awkwardness out of the way there. In, in yeah. art and in fighting, Brian, it's not getting knocked down. It's getting back up. That's what we're interested in here at the Art Fight Podcast. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. So, Joe, you were saying when you were bringing us in. I was just saying it's a good day to talk with an old friend. And uh, and then I handed it to you to introduce your old friend to everybody who doesn't know him. We yeah. had a bunch of people. We've got a bunch of people listening right now. I'm sure some of them are here for, because of our guests this week. Yeah. So happy to introduce to those who don't know and then to greet many that do. Peter Joseph. PJ, what is up, man? Hey, Brian. Good to see you there. <laughs> been a long time. Been a long time. It's been a long time. We've had a little bit of green room time, but uh, man, it's it's a real treat and a pleasure to talk to somebody that it's one of the, when you have people that have known you for a long time you don't have to see them for years and then you automatically feel like you're coming from a, a similar footing and it's a strange it's a strange thing uh to to be talking to somebody from like where we're from i bet you probably don't talk to tons of people from where we're from yeah, very really just maybe three or four folks that I still keep in touch with. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps this podcast will just remind you why you try to like keep that <laughs> uh, a little separate. You no, know, but yeah, we all come from the same place and then the trajectory spread and your work in the arts I always thought was very impressive. You were never a trained drummer as I was because I'm official trained drummer. You know? <laughs> 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 I'm elevated. But, uh, I was always impressed by your spooky talents, as I call it, Brian, whether it was photography or video or your drum set playing and the musical interest I think we both share very in-depthly in fact that's where the beginning of all my artistic sensibilities come from so uh, I appreciate that man and I think that's actually a, a cool sort of launch point into sort of creative process which obviously we talk a lot here and, and creative pleasure and pain but uh, so for instance there's a guy um, uh, Cliff I'll just, we'll call him Cliff, but there was a Cliff in our hometown who was a fantastic drummer. When I started playing, he had said he was dating a friend of mine and, and a friend of ours and was like, you should take lessons. Oh, okay, fine. And I'd already been playing a while, like a year or two. And then I took lessons and he, he literally just watched me for a couple of minutes and said, I don't know, man, like just, he's, he literally was looking for students and said, just keep doing what you're doing. So it was either like, this kind of strange, like, I'm just going to, I don't want to mess with this kid's raw talent. He's great. Or it was like, this is just a mess. I'm never, this is already too far gone. But yeah, you went, yeah. Uh, you went down the path of like proper learning. And so I think it's really cool to see, obviously we've gone in different paths musically from the exactly the same starting point with many of the exact same influences. And maybe sure. that's just one of the fundamental differences, but I know for you going to art school and getting classically trained in percussion was a real point of uh, beginning for you with all of the filmmaking and other worldly things you've done since then. You make a good point. First of all, there's an overratedness to being, quote, trained. And I really wish I did not go the classical route. I wish I went more of an improvisatory jazz route because mm -hmm. those that are those that submerse themselves in that tend to have better ears. They have more of a responsive mechanism. Classical music is very intellectual, meaning you study it from a kind of post ex post facto. Let's analyze this piece of music. And then jazz, of course, it's all from ear. It's a more of a, of an, a sensory based process. And there's a, more fusion than there was back then. But I, I think it's actually very positive as a kind of um, guidance to let people 
literally flourish on their own as opposed to being rigidly boxed in and put down this regimented role. I mean, all education on a certain level is a kind of indoctrination, right? Obviously, you learn and you want to develop and you induce and you have inference and you do all that. But really, you're boxed into a certain kind of sensibility by the conditioning that you experience. So one side of me is very grateful. I mean, I was able to go to that art school from the age of 13, which was shocking. If I hadn't yeah. have done that, I'm sure I would have gone the route of my brother and been kicked out of all the high schools like everybody else in my <laughs> that I knew that was in public school. So I was very fortunate. And then I went to New York for the university there, the conservatory there that I dropped out. I had enough of the scene uh, as far as that. But I will say that as far as all the other artistic things I do, I always come back to the musical foundation because that's where the mm -hmm. phrasing is. That's where the structural relationships that I identify with are, particularly in the, the contemporary classical genre, like from Stockhausen to Zanakis to Fernie Hall to all these more experimental avant-garde folks. And that is when we eventually talk about my film and reflections, if you really look at that film, it's actually rooted in this avant-garde displacement of the the vocabulary that is traditional to film, but gets turned upside down purposefully and satirically, and it deviates in ways that are purposefully annoying. It's improvisatory. So a lot of that musical upsetness that happened in the mid 20th century with those contemporary composers, where they freed the dissonance, Schoenberg, it's all about breaking the molds of the patterns that unfortunately, and fortunately, but I think to a large extent, is unfortunate because it's all recipe. When you listen to pop music, when you look at films, you look at shows, there's so much recipe and there's nothing new in any of that. And it's like that old Arthur C. Clarke quote where he says, if anything comes out that you've created that's instantly received, then it's nothing new. There's nothing challenging. <laughs> the break, the, the blockbusters that we see routinely come through, whether it's music or film, they're generally speaking, there are exceptions. It's nothing new. And I, I, that's my MO when it comes to artistic creation, aside from the social consciousness stuff. So I'm always just looking for new ways to, to break through and do something different. So cool. I, I, Joe, do you have something? Because I had a quick thought. No, uh, I was, I was uh, uh, waiting with, with anxious <laughs> thoughts to hear your next word, Brian. Yes, thank you. <laughs> now, now, so I guess what I'm thinking is there's something about, obviously what you're talking about is uh, essentially language and how to work in different languages and how to look at what's been done perhaps in a postmodern sense or whatever with all these different methods of, of communication and organizing information or thoughts. Uh, it's There's some order or some concept to that. I, I wonder, how do you negotiate? Because we both had this problem in our lives where we enjoy things that are probably more complex than what we really should be into for our own good. Uh, we were suckers for wormholes and we will go down them mm. and never come back. And, and it's a beautiful thing, but at the same time, do you ever just, just look back sometimes and go, man, what if I kept it simpler? Or what if I just didn't put so much energy into, because especially as drummers, right? The first order of business is like, how much shit can I do at one time? <laughs> and how many, how much independence of my limbs can I accomplish? And you're, it's a sport slash music slash slash self-absorbed slash just really loud, whatever. I don't know. It's a whole bunch of things when you're, especially when you're just getting started and you're an insanely good drummer and, and were from the get-go and came out, but it wasn't like you. And, and here's the funny thing. It's you went straight from uh, rudiments or something to, oh, he's got like a 30 piece drum kit and he's murdering them perfectly. Minimalism has its place. I think that's, a, it's, it's also, a, it's a useful But it's way. not here. <laughs> it's over yeah, there. Right. <laughs> Every, everything I've always 
always done to a great fault has been far too large. Uh, that's just unfortunately a gravitation. I don't think it's rooted in any kind of arrogance or megalomania. I just like big, <laughs> big ideas. I just I like big projects. My first film, Zeitgeist, was actually a two-hour performance piece that I literally played percussion for, and that you know that no one really did anything like that. I had to spend forever writing this thing out, composing all the music. It wasn't just a little documentary. I literally started a movement that wants to change the fucking world. I'm like, this is just who I am. That's right. everything I do big media festivals, or at least like these 12 hour long things in LA, everything is just grand in my mind. And even my current artistic interests for what I want to do in terms of getting back to some musical place, which we could talk about as well. I have some ideas to just try to preserve my root artistic integrity. I have a Zappa style band that I'm trying to piece together, but it's always large. I want to do full like hour and a half long concept pieces. So I just like the ambition of it. But of course we grew up with people like Neil Peart and Terry Bozio, and they always, the impression of that kind of grand sense of execution, I think had a big impression on me. But I do say that the minimalism, excuse me, that overambition can be very destructive as an artist because you're always pushing yourself past what I think you can accomplish. Many people can accomplish. That's That was my problem. I, I recorded in 2002 a J.S. Bach album on Marimba. Most I remember of those, that. Many yeah. of those pieces have never been recorded before or after because they're ridiculously difficult. And I spent years and years learning this music and I, I never was really satisfied with it because I always pushed too far. And I think that's something that in our maturity, we learn that there is a point where you, if you go too far, if you get too ambitious, you're just going to kill your confidence. You're not going to really satisfy a, a true execution. Mm. And, I, and I still see that even in a reflection. Reflection is a three-hour film, right? And it's a, an epically complex film made of vignettes. And there's a side of me that pushed it to the biggest, to the brink as I could with the visuals, trying to get the green screen to look decent. And, and to me, it's a beautiful piece of art. I'm very proud of it. But I could spend another five years working on it to even mm get it better because it's really not exactly what I wanted it to be but that's my own fault because I'm too ambitious for that and that's I think that's a bad thing I think that's a neurosis that could be developed I think I will admit I think I'm neurotic when it comes to being overly ambitious and I would give that as advice to young artists to try to not let yourself do that because just to really execute like a really nice phrase that's simple to build like a feel. It's like the drum set feel guys. You have the complex guys, then you have the feel guys, like the guys that play with Herbie Hancock. These guys are so in the pocket. They have mastered the feel of that funk style. You can't even imitate it because the feel is so smooth. And yet on paper, it looks very simple. So mm. stuff like that goes through my mind when it comes to ambition and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, today I thought of an idea for a T-shirt. I'm just I'm waiting gonna, for you, Joe. Jesus I'm gonna Christ. Make a, I'm going to make a T-shirt that says Funk Lloyd. But that's what you're talking about. We're talking about the funk. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, Joe, Back you, to you, Brian. <laughs> but Joe, you play saxophone. I just found out for whatever reason. I didn't know that was your first instrument. And I, got Joe, it, I got it to the guy. The guy's got it right now. Oh, the guy's got it. The guy's got it. He's fixing it. By the way, PJ, like one of the things I always thought was amazing with drums when I was first really deeply listening to just drums and drummers is the best drummer in the world, in my mind, or one of the best drummers in the world that ever lived was Tony Williams. And I always thought it was funny how like how he could play just a straight, simple four pattern, just a simple, no accents, just kick, snare, hi-hat, yeah. no obvious means or of injecting any sort of personality or styling in any way just like hitting this thing perfect time and just playing it and you can hear it for a second and go that's tony williams that's what you're talking about right like this the grid is the grid 
but man, there's a million miles of nuance in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. In hindsight, that's exactly the kind of stuff I wish I'd worked on in, in youth was more of a field development and not that kind of obsessive complexity. I still have a, a huge electric drum set and I've, I still try to perform when I can, but I, I always break it down sometimes. I just use just the snare, just the hi-hat, just the bass drum. I force myself to not give in to that attempt to just keep creating more and more new instruments or sounds. It's a good discipline. It's a good discipline. But <laughs> I yeah. saw Tony Williams do a clinic once, man, and it changed my life. I, yeah. I got to see him do a clinic about a year before he died. Hmm. And, and all he did, you would have loved it. Oh my God, you would have loved it. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, because he came out, he didn't say anything to anybody. You could just feel that he hated being there <laughs> and, hate, and hated doing it. You could just, it was palpable. Like I felt guilty for being there. Luckily, I was the guest of somebody that was there to see him or whatever. So I felt like I had some, I wasn't in the fray, but he comes in, there's an unamplified kit. He sits down and he just starts playing. And when he starts playing though, he's just playing like a double stroke roll on the snare. And he's just keeping it perfectly even. And it's just, and he does that for, and you can feel the anticipation in the room. They want to see all the, the whiz bang stuff or whatever. And right. he's just playing a double stroke roll perfectly at the exact same volume and everything. Mm. But he does this for a painfully long, maybe two minutes, three minutes. And it's just plowing through the uneasiness in the room. And then all of a sudden you start to, it was like taking acid or something. It was like, all of a sudden, this whole world opened up. It was like, oh, now we're in 3D or 4 There's something sonically that he's whipping wow. up here and like vibrating into that it was like, it, all of a sudden, kind of like your hands around your ears vibe. It was like, whoa, whoa. Right. And I was 10 feet away and I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and, then, and, and then he started playing with the, the dynamics of it slowly and then brought it all out and then played all this kind of, he was known especially for doing a lot of this melodic stuff on the toms and and... So he did all of that, did all the things. I, mean, I remember there was just pieces of wood and just after it was he, 30 minutes of this, it was just like a bomb had gone off of genius. And then he got up and then he was just like, yeah, so you guys got any questions? And the first guy raises his hand. He's, he's got like the, remember like back in those days, PJ, like people would wear like world music looking hats like all of a sudden right. like mi middle-aged white dudes that played drums needed to look like they just got back from africa or whatever <laughs> it was a weird anyway some guy that looked like that raised his hand he said i noticed you were playing what i don't know nine over four and the pattern and the right hand you were doing this on your ride symbol da, da, da. and so tony wins he's what you're asking me is how did i develop my ride symbol technique that's what you're asking me he just totally sh wow. shrunk the question down and yeah. just said and then it, and it was exactly what you were just talking about he said you i developed my ride symbol technique because i took all of my drums except for my ride symbol and i put them in the closet i just put them away mm. and, he's, and then i just played my ride symbol for i don't know like six or seven or eight hours a day and after i'd done that for a long time i developed my ride symbol technique <laughs> <laughs> how complicated i know and just yeah. one, i know this is a long story but one quick more thing is that the other best and this is like great advice for any artist i think in any field but he, he, the other way he would reframe people's questions is he would say, really what you're, he's look, it's just about getting the gig. You're asking all these questions. All you want to play drums, right? That you got to get a gig so you can <laughs> play drums. So I'm just going to tell you how to get the gig. And he goes, so say you're playing with a rock band. You want to play with this rock band. He's like, play in a rock style 
<laughs> and and make the band just you know sound real good and you'll get the gig he's like, no, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. say you want to play in a jazz band just play like when a jazz style like it was <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's the thing about great artists is they really if you put them on the spot they can't explain themselves because it comes from a different place it's so ingrained the, all the work that they've done throughout the years it I, there's a guy named steve schick out of he's out in california and new york but when i was studying in manhattan he was a, a one of these big contemporary guys and this guy's technical capacity was off the chart from on a level that's different from say a drum set capacity even though exceeding it he could play polymetric polyrhythmic overlays from from composers that literally would punch in complex equations into computers and produce these rhythmic structures that what's called tuplet nesting so if you have a five over seven imagine that in the same space of time for the audience of five equidistant notes against seven equidistant notes and then inside those you have tuplets so as you have like the first two notes of the five there's a triplet inside the, between the two fives and absolutely insane mathematical stuff and this guy not only could learn this stuff he played it all from memory he like had a switch he could just turn a switch on his body and play hmm. these outrageous like he do three night performances and i always ask him every time like how do you play all of this ridiculous music that most people can't learn in their lifetime how do you learn it and execute it all from memory and i always asked him that and he always got mad at me because he could never explain himself because it's just what he could do there's no yeah. way you, could, you can't teach that and i that goes to show the difference of talent and that's another important point for artists to learn is you have to home in on what your talents prevail like you can't sit there and pine especially as you age over things you can't do i might not have the fastest flam paradiddles but i don't sit there and pine over it because there's lots of other <laughs> things that i think i do i can do and as you age i think it's very important to mature that way so i don't sit there and torture myself these days the technical limitations i try to look at what i'm good at and build and develop that and i think that's an important part too because you know you're just not going to be some like somebody else that's not a great failure everyone wants to try and improve to an extent where they exceed some concept of somebody mm -hmm. else the competitive element in music um, i think Think it can be inspiring, but it's also it also could be artistically draining because you're not really discovering who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, the best drummer is probably my favorite drummer at the moment is Vinnie Kaliuta. And mm -hmm. when you just like Tony Williams, the, when he hits, when he plays, you just you know who he is. Like it's you know exactly what he his his expression mm -hmm. is. There's nothing you can read into some of it and say his influences might have been this and that, but it's just who he is. And mm -hmm. that's what I respect more than anything else. That's a great failure, I think, of the classical genre, particularly, is because it does have a fundamental kind of uh competitive thing. If you want to get a job in an orchestra, you have to learn these these pieces of you know, orchestral pieces like Porgy and Bess on a xylophone. And you have to sit there and learn them <laughs> absolutely perfectly and then mm -hmm. hope that you play it in such an execution that conforms to the orchestra that you get the job. That's what I did not want to do. I, I had no interest in, in being a, a cog in a classical wheel. You got to so, play in an orchestral style if you want to get the gig. How <laughs> <laughs> <Not> simple. <laughs> you know, simple. it's interesting what you're talking about, though. A lot of the things that you're saying about like self-expression and like leading with their strongest sort of weapons or whatever. Th this is all like right out of Bruce Lee's uh, philosophy and his actual martial arts system that he built. I love, love Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah. And see, that's where this whole, that's why we do this weird niche podcast because sure. it, it actually exists. <laughs> and we're, and we've just found all the weirdos who want to hang out there with us uh, for a minute. When uh, we just had a comment from somebody named William Fitzgibbons who was talking about uh, life asking someone, it's like asking someone, what's the process for putting your shoes on? They'd have to stop and think about it. And that reminded me thinking about this idea of developing a personal style, maybe just with bits and pieces of education and knowledge versus 
versus being schooled. But another part of being schooled is the teaching part of it. And what William's bringing up here reminds me of how many artists we've had on the show and coaches as well who've come on the show and have talked about how much they've learned by the process of teaching other people. And it's exactly what he's referring to, where somebody who's been painting since they were a little kid, maybe now all of a sudden they're teaching at a university or doing a workshop or something. And suddenly they've got to be able to stop and break down what the fuck they're doing. And they've never done that before. You know what I mean? And so it puts them in the same position of having to explain themselves to themselves so they can explain it to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. The over-intellectualization is, I think, more of a detriment than anything else. It could be, it goes, if you're a dancer, for example, you're not thinking when you're executing. In fact, if you're a musician, ultimately, you're not thinking when you're executing. It comes of a kind of trust, of a kind of feel. And that's, again, why the John Coltrane and the great jazz guys, mm. they're, not, they're not only physically able to have this intuition that their actual musicality comes from a place. I think it's if you know what you're going to do, it's not going to be new. So there's the, the fact that the jazz guys in the avant-garde particularly were able to create a space where they're able to not only play without thinking, but actually create without thinking, I thought was yeah. more in critical advents of contemporary artistic development and music. Because if you know, for me these days, I try to break away from everything that I've been taught. Like when I think about when I think about approaching a piece of music, if I'm writing something, I don't want to think about it in terms of the, the classical structure or notation. I think about it in these kind of wave blobs, if that makes any sense. I think about forms. <laughs> so I think about like listening to a piece of music, instead of thinking about it as a phrase or this terminology, I think about it just like a, a fra- as a layer of something combined with other layers. This sounds very crude, but it, it works <laughs> in, my, in my mind. But the whole point is yeah. to try and not frame my, my, my thought process in any kind of traditional way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not thinking necessarily tonally. I'm not thinking necessarily in terms of for time. I'm trying to just break all of that. And, and I, I, I sing a lot to myself. I just randomly try to, there's a book written by a guy, you might, you guys might like this actually, because it relates to a lot of physical things, even could even relate to martial arts. It's effort, effortless mastery. And I, before I can't remember the guy's name right now, but it's a, anyone can find this book. It's a little, it's very minimalistic and a little woo woo at times, but he did one thing in the book that I thought was brilliant. He's a pianist, by the way. And he said that when he was in college, he got so stressed out by, he was a Juilliard and he got so stressed out by not being good enough that he literally couldn't play anymore. Like it paralyzed him. He was in, he felt so inferior and so stressed. And he said he listened to music and he couldn't even appreciate it because he kept thinking about their technique and how much better they were than him and all of that. So what he does, the first thing he does when he goes up to his instrument is he hits the most random combination he possibly possibly can. That's mm. really hard. That's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Challenge anybody that plays an instrument to go up to it and it could be as free as possible and rapidly strike as many notes as you possibly can on a marimba, on a drum set, because your brain wants to wants to put it into a box. Your brain's mm-hmm. always going to want to find something it's familiar with. And I do that every time now. I, I just try to hit anything random without any consciousness, nothing. And it's very therapeutic. And I recommend that to people. Same for like painters. I think anyone that has any art for you, you're painting, just yeah. do anything random. Just see what, just see if you can force yourself into that complete freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's very therapeutic. What I love about that too, is it's about, it's a real good shortcut to what is natively physically most apt to come out of you, right? Like the, the, the way your height or your arm strength or any, any, any other physical things or whatever, it, there's some way to get right to the truth of what your sort of framework is that you're operating in by just being free in it. A lot of times people go for lofty constructs and then try to train themselves and modulate themselves in all these ways to be able to execute 
or whatever. But if you just cut to the shit and just do what is the most visceral and, and intensive and randomized perhaps thing that you yeah. can just do, then you're already in your wheelhouse of without shortchanging yourself, still striving for something and trying to eventually organize it or, or whatever. And well, one quick little sort of page turn. Oh, oh, and by the way, just to punctuate my stupid story from earlier, my hilarious Tony Williams story. <laughs> after, after, PJ, you'll love this. So I had this uh, CD at the time. It's called Arcana. It was, uh, it's a CD that's, it's Tony Williams, Derek Bailey, and Bill Laswell mm. as a trio recorded in Greenpoint back in the day. And it's the, it, to me, it's like one of the most landmark records that I've ever owned or had, or it's just a beautiful masterpiece, hmm. uh, mostly improvisational and certainly nothing like what Tony Williams would normally be doing. But anyway, I was there. I'd never, I never ever asked for autographs. I've only asked for autographs twice in my life. And this was one of them. And I so I was going to get Tony Williams to sign it. And so I'm like, Hey man, do you mind signing this for me? He's like, sure. Okay. He, and then he was like, He's like, what is this? <laughs> I was like, it's a record that you're on with Bill Laswell, Derek Bailey. He's like, really? <laughs> He's like, oh, all right. And he signed it. Just, I, I'll take your word for it vibe. Bill, this like, it wasn't like the cover wasn't, it was some imagery. It wasn't names or whatever. And so he was just, okay. Photograph. I, like, it was almost to the point where he was like, this, this dude thinks that I played on this record. It's probably some other Tony Williams. I don't know. He was that disconnected from it, but that really struck me at the time too, because it was like, we, we're so consumed with our projects and like the, Joe, you're just, you're putting out music all the time and you just put out stuff and I just put out stuff. It's you're concerned about titling or sequence or production yeah. or packaging in some way. You're concerned about like how that stuff is echoed through because you don't, right. you, you feel close to it. You're, it doesn't mean you're like obsessing over it or whining about it or anything. It just means like you're thinking about it and you just put something out. Right. You know, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. It's and straight it, to just be so just prolific and just meteor going forward in space at yeah. such a high creative intensity that you actually shed all of that shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I did that. Okay, cool. I don't <laughs> even remember. <laughs> well, that's the, the, the genre at that time, particularly that the discography is outrageous when it comes to someone like Tony Williams. It mm -hmm. wouldn't surprise me that he completely forgot. I mean, didn't Miles Davis force out like nine albums in like, two years or something to get out of one of his contracts? Just <laughs> he wanted to go to Columbia. Like it's just an, it's interesting uh, as a genre point how incredible those that, that period of time was with those players. Mm -hmm. Another thing I, before I forget, the, one of my biggest influences, which I think carries conciliantly, so to speak, meaning the lumping together of things, how you can get you can derive knowledge from one thing and apply it to something else. And I think the science and the arts do that very extensively is work by Yanis Zanakis. I don't know if you, either one of you are familiar with this composer. Yeah. Zanakis was really famous in the percussion community when I was growing up in, in school because he was one of the first to really compose for percussion because most, most percussion composition at that time was modern because no one thought percussion was really an instrument, excuse me, an, an array that where you approach as a solo instrument or as an ensemble instrument. You never had. In the classical world, the percussionist just sat there hitting the triangle every 45 minutes. And there was no concept. So like marimba, solo marimba, that didn't happen in terms of the westernization of it until probably the 1970s. Mm. So it's a very modern, in other words. And Zakis was right there and he composed some very influential percussion music. But he did so from the standpoint of a mathematician and architect. And he wrote his thesis called 
Arts Science Alloys, which was a very simple book, actually, people can find. I recommend any artist read it. It's him being interviewed by Oliver Messiaen and all these huge composers of the New York tradition, drilling him on his style, which was applying mathematics and architecture to music. And not just figuratively, where you're just like thinking, oh, this is architectural in its sound. He literally composed differential equations, and he'd orchestrated all of this insane kind of visual representation. He literally built the first computer that converted visual design into sound in the 1950s. I did a little talk on this guy a couple of years back at a media festival I held called just that art science alloys if anyone wants to check it out hmm. it's on, on youtube for free but his that idea of bridging of the arts and the sciences or any kind of second seemingly secondary notion to influence or to in fact create art in another area consilience is really important because it opens up doors that you could never expect so was Zanakis's music i mean he was the anti-musician everyone hated this idea oh they oh he's going to compose calculations and turn it into music that's not musical but yet what he actually output and his theories behind it were incredible like the visual excuse me the aural nature was so consistent and he has such a unique style in the way he approached it all of his music it, it truly stood the test of time and now he's actually very much regarded and respected as a as an actual composer which he wasn't in the past so that's that's really important to me because if you i guess i said earlier if you know what you're going to do then you're just going to keep doing the same thing i mean that very fact that you can combine all these other aesthetic concepts for example in zanakis's world even though he used stochastic equations, meaning these sort of random generation equations, things that like fractal generation equations, stuff like that. He had a theory behind it because he lost his eye in war after a shell went off when he was in a cafe during, I believe, the First World War. No, I'm sorry. It was it was a, a war in the, in the East, in the Soviet East. I'm sorry. I can't remember the exact where it was, but it wasn't the World War. But he had a very visceral experience with the violence of that. And that was very much embraced in his music, if you listen to it. And he was able to manifest it through his architectural and mathematical conceptions. It's actually ingrained in that. So it's not only the life experience, like in fact, in the book, he writes about how he's witnessing a march and the march turns into chaos and suddenly the police come and they oppress the marchers, violence and guns. And he was able to turn that chaos, that stochasticism, that stochastic property of mass chaos uh, into equations and mathematical and architectural models, which I thought was just insane first of all it's hard to explain that to people but you hear it you really hear it i think and again he's actually built some of his music too like he really he was an architect you can go and see some of these he calls these polytopes these beautiful architectural things and he literally would translate them into 2d and create notation structures around them and if you look at them and then you listen to it it's actually quite incredible the, the similarity in the in the aesthetic experience so i recommend him as a general artistic Ad engine, excuse me, artistic pioneer, one of my most influential ones, Giannis Zanakis, for anyone that wants to check him out. Interesting. I think you, you make me recall an experience with a Nashville musician that I know named Patrick Dolan. Patrick is a fantastic saxophone player, woodwind player in general. And you probably know him, Brian. Did you ever come across him? He was in that whole scene with Jeff Coffin and all those guys. A younger guy, though. He was in, He was actually going to get his undergrad at Belmont when I first met him back in the 90s. But at one point in like 2008, I was going to make a record and Patrick was talking to me about playing on the record. And and he came over to listen to music because it's because his stuff was he was mostly into jazz and stuff like that and hadn't heard a whole lot of in-depth deep cuts of soul music and things like that necessarily he was into a lot of r&b though but so we were listening to all these, these old records and things in my house and and it was just sort of me trying to give him a sense of this song maybe we could do horns something like this or maybe this sound would be good or whatever there's all sorts of different ways you can approach these things and we were looking to find different solutions for different songs and in a way 
it was me saying, I know this guy, he's a great guy, and I've known him for years, but we've never really worked together, so let's see if we're simpatico. So at some point, though, the funny thing is you're sitting there listening to music and thinking you're going to communicate through music to talk about music. And at some point, he looks at my shelf and he sees this little row of Paul Bowles books that I had on my shelf. And Paul Bowles, B-O-W-L-E-S, for anybody who doesn't know who's listening, is a sort of a beat beat generation adjacent author who was like uh, living in Tangier for years and writes about his experiences as an expatriate and all this stuff. And Paul Bowles was also a composer. And a lot of people who know him as an author don't know that he actually was a, also a composer, a classical composer. And Patrick saw my Paul Bowles books. And he's oh Paul Bowles. I wrote my my master's thesis about the use of timbre in Paul Bowles literary work. So he mm. sort of compared and contrasted the way he used timbre in his compositions and said, you can find that same thing in his voice as an author. Duh. And basically at that moment, I think we both were like, or oh, this is going to be fucking fun. Like we're going to, we're going to work on this project together and we're already levels above this shit. Like we don't have to worry about these arrangements anymore. We're on the same page and then some. And I think that ability to, to, to mix things together and to stick things together in, in unique ways or to look at one, one creator through the lens of different bodies of work they've made. or I think that, like you're saying, that combining things is really a great way to, to, to get to something novel. You know what I mean? This isn't new and that isn't new, but what if we did this? <laughs> you know? Sure. Well, I remember that guy, Steve Schick, I mentioned that extremely, extremely uh, unique percussionist and his one of my favorite statements at a at a, a clinic he did he goes i'm sick of playing music by musicians because <laughs> he was wow. he's more fascinated by people that came from it from a different place and I, uh -huh. I i i happen to agree with that obviously it's a combination of effects but that word consilience i think is something that also people should check out edward o wilson wrote a whole book on it mainly referring to the science and humanities but in the arts consilience which means you're leaping from one area to another and you're deriving knowledge from places that apply to other areas that you never expect and that's a fascinating artistic interest as well. But yeah. Hey, PJ, uh, I got a question for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you busy? I got a question. <laughs> no, uh, this is a little bit straddling the worlds, all the worlds that you're addressing in your work. But if you wanted to bring up, for instance, just the idea of anti-intellectualism mm. and also the sort of the impact of vanity on culture and maybe ways that you've talked about it more like the... Messiah, the uh, consumerism worship. I want status. I've some. I've learned to value these things. Therefore, I aspire to these things, mm. irrespective of, of even my actual moral character. Sometimes it's an instinct, whatever. But I guess if I'm thinking about anti-intellectualism and sort of this vanity, and then I look at zooming back and go, okay, what's happened in the last decade or so with music, with culture. And then obviously in this sort of strange culminating kind of uh, new chapter that we've folded into in the last while, the last six months or whatever you want to call it, a uh, year. I guess I'm just curious from like a creative music perspective, do you find yourself looking around and saying, I see like, uh, the culture right now is showing me all of these sort of outputs and signals that there's some threshold is being overshot here or even just Instagram culture and influencer culture and then the way that records are made now and, and nobody even does a concept record anymore or all of those kind of we've had these kind of conversations a million times and it's an obvious conversation but I, I feel like you're going to have a unique point of view or a way to stitch together the, the for lack of a better term the zeitgeist right like the in a literal sense uh, of what's going on <laughs> right 
now, what's going on right now in your view? And then if you can articulate maybe how these things run together, maybe systemically or structurally as you talk about. And then on the flip side of that sort of prism, I'm interested in how you as an independent human, independent of zeitgeist and, and inner reflections and all of the things that you've done or are doing as just an artist, a point of turnaway, like solitude. This is mine. This is not the, it doesn't matter about this is the world, right? You're not worried about an, an audience for it. You're not worried. You're just mm. satiating yourself as a human being in the most primal, basic way. You're an artist. So, how do you reconcile when you are the purveyor sure. of those ideas? So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking around it enough just to maybe draw enough constellations, but anyway, carry on. I, I thank you for the simple question. Yeah. I think there's three, three <laughs> layers to it. You have, first of all, the unfortunate commercial reality where any artist has to produce something that's going to sell if they want to survive based on that. Then you have your personal integrity, right? You, what you really like, what you really enjoy. And that is fundamentally a narcissistic thing. That's you like it. That's for your own satisfaction, the execution, the accomplishment. And then there's the purpose in terms of its social relevance, right? So you want to do something that has a positive effect on others. You want to inspire people, or maybe you want to create art that's conceptualized to communicate something important like I, I try to do in general with defines most of the things that I've done at least over the past 10 years with film and even some musical projects as well. So to me, the worst though is the commercialization. That's the, the commodification of culture has accelerated. We have lost so much more as time has gone on in terms of what we hold sacred because of commercialization, because everything now has to have a dollar sign on it. Uh, music it generally still has its integrity. You still have bands out there doing it and they, they do it honestly, but it's increasingly few and far between, I, I think. Uh, you look, and that's why I still resort back to the you know, 60s, 70s period. There's more heart to that. It wasn't the same idea. And you read these stories about these bands that just got completely ripped off by their record labels because they didn't care. They, they were happy to get fed and play music, but it, it's changed. And that, I think, is the greatest cultural decline is the commercialization and commodification of everything. And I think that's needless to say. Most of us are aware of that. Uh, and there's numerous examples. Obviously, people are looking like Instagram, as you commented. People are becoming commodities. Not only are are we are people promoting things for money, they're literally embracing it. It's like that drummer modern. Remember Modern Drummer Magazine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you really look at that, it's not really about intellectual drumming and interviews. It's about selling people stuff. So they they've, half of it's all commercials. And in the middle of it are articles about the equipment that other people are using. Try <laughs> to get you to buy it because you want to be like Tony Williams or somebody because he's talking about an article and he plays a DW drum pedal or something. So it's gotten worse and worse. So people are literally just walking advertisements that there are literally schemes out there. In fact, I wrote in my prior book, there's a guy out of Harvard. He wrote a book called The Moral Limits of Markets. That's what it's called. And it's all a treatment on just the fact that we've gotten worse and worse in terms of putting a price tag on everything. There are kids that get money if they get good grades. There's other examples of advertising guys. That you probably remember this. They wear like logos around. They get paid to walk around with as a human logo. That's not as common anymore, but it was prevalent there for a few years. Guys that have Nike tattoos on the back of their head. And that just it just inches into territory where everything where people lose who they are. They lose what any kind of integrity even is. And I think you see and that's a that goes back to the formulaic stuff, too. I'm not a, a master filmmaker or a master anything. I'm a generally I'm, I'm a generalist overall. In fact, since my I don't have time to practice that much anymore, I consider music to be more of a generalist issue as well. And I don't mind that. 
excuse me, I just lost my train of thought. Yes. So I'm not trying, in other words, to be like the best at anything. I just want to find a way to use my art to convince people of something in a positive way. And I do that walking those lines that you just spoke of. I don't think inner reflections, for example, is going to be very commercially viable. I think I'm going to recover maybe over a number of years. And I'm definitely rethinking how I'm doing the next one. And I'm going to make some simpler documentaries in the meantime that are going to be more viable, more traditional to fit that recipe that more people will appreciate because they have to. I don't want to be waiting tables somewhere. I'm a little too old for that. So I hope that answers your question. As far as the vanity thing, that feeds right into the consumerism culture. That's, again, look, look at, look just look at Instagram, what it's become as that core example, just living advertisements. That's what they become. That's people are becoming iconic into themselves because of the superficiality of it. And it spreads like a disease and a virus. And I could talk at length yeah. you know, about that. So, and I'll say one more final thing on that. Yeah, it's yeah. not, it's people say, well, that's just a human nature thing. Well, it's not. We, com we commodified life around the industrial revolution, as I write in my book. You had to create a consumption society in order to keep the money moving because surplus was slowly being generated after the industrial revolution when mechanization was applied. So you have this huge mass move in Western society, particularly in America, where the National Federation of Industries and about four other organizations, they got together and they produced all this new commercial stuff, like TV shows that were all about buying something. I can't, I'm sorry, I don't remember the names of some of these, but it's in my book. And they had to foster the interest to manifest people to be infinite consumers because that's what we've become, because that's what the system requires. We have become agents of a social system that requires everyone to buy and consume. So we are literally embracing that value system disorder. And you see it, the, the keeping up with the Joneses. I was one of the last, I use this example, I was one of the last to get a cell phone. The only reason I got a cell phone eventually was because I had to be able to engage others that had it in yeah. the same degree. Mm -hmm. It's just like now the Apple comes out with a new phone that has a special camera. Oh, the camera's great. And there's gonna be little kids that have this, have their older iPhone and be like, oh, my, my camera, my phone, Photos don't look as good as my friends, and they're going to literally be motivated to buy the stupid fucking phone just yeah. because they want to get the better camera. Yeah. So this is the sickness and the disease of their consumer culture, and it's destroying the planet, and it's destroying human psychology. Since we're doomed and everything, uh, <laughs> like, what's the way to have the best time possible with what we have left? No, uh, no, <laughs> my... I have so many thoughts and so many things I want to echo or push back to you. But basically, I think that the thing that keeps coming back to me is when you're looking at to endeavor to create something, you inevitably have to think or you should. You don't really have to either. But you want to think about where it's going or why you're doing it on some level, unless you're just one of those sort of. Coltrane figures where you're just a, a divine energy that's just passing through. <laughs> but right, right. Uh, but but for, for the rest of us mortals, it's, when I think about us having, coming from the same town, the same culture, the same everything, I, I spent a, a lot of my young years in your house hanging out. We were all around the same kind of things. And again, you went to this sort of path and maybe I went this path and other people went different paths. But for you, it, it's you're taking on the fate of the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> as, as an occupation, you are taking on trying to plant enough seeds to grow, to manifest, or at least provide some sort of option for parallel sort of interstitial to get us to the next thing or whatever it is. You're really thinking about actually the planet and the structures uh, that are here. And every, you're thinking about the totality of everything as we know it. Whereas in my work, I'm just like, I want to make someone feel wistful. <laughs> and, and that's really it. And, and but, but I do have one point about that, just to add on to it, is just to say that they're the same thing. 
And I see it as the same thing. Your path is perhaps a little bit more, you could probably have to read more books and whatnot. But, but in my case, I feel like if you can do anything to fuel the things in humanity that are what create empathy or generate emotion or feeling or the value of recollection or memory or nostalgia or whatever, you're at least in some small way probing the broader energy that we're all in or whatever and making people think or giving people pause or whatever. And all of those things are really direct contributions to what are the things that are necessary to bring about a lot of the changes that you talk about that are uh, Herculean to approach, much less understand. I, I People think that this kind of work and focus comes from a place of altruism. It doesn't actually. It comes from a place of contempt. I'm embarrassed by this society. I'm embarrassed that I have to tolerate what is happening. I am empathic. I walk down the street. When I see a homeless, there's literally these homeless villages now in Los Angeles. That I can't, they have a, there's a name for them. They're, they're, they're horrific. They're like these little towns now. They're not like individual tents. They're these like whole little cities that are being developed under bridges. And I'm not, I'm sympathetic to these people. Obviously, I don't want them to be there, but on a deeper level, it just pisses me off. Yeah. This is what our society is created. This is how absolutely immature and irresponsible our system is. And of course, it's going to get much worse. There's no positive trajectory whatsoever. There's only one positive trajectory, and that is what's called the more with less ephemeralization phenomenon, which simply means that through science and technology, we've been able to do more and more with less and less resources and energy. Just like your cell phone has a chip more powerful than the biggest supercomputers of 50 years ago that cost mm -hmm. millions of dollars, you stunned, all, the, all that stuff, the exponential <laughs> Moore's law and all that. That is the ultimate economic trend that can actually solve problems, that can actually get us out of all of the of all the negative trajectories that we're in, whether it's climate change and beyond, but we're not harnessing them properly because it's all being used for commercial industry. It's all about business, mm -hmm. and the business as usual phenomenon is the grinding mechanism that is going to destroy civilization. As far as I'm concerned, um, I believe it's important. <laughs> I, I, I'm not kidding. I, this is all I've thought about. Not all I've thought about, but I, it's there's no anyone having kids right now better think twice. I, mm -hmm. I, it sounds really cynical to say this, but all you have to do is look at the numbers. And yeah. yes, I certainly hope that we're going to be able to clean up. We, we can get carbon capture and take stuff out of the air. Yeah, we can do that. We're just chasing the problems we're creating, right? We're, it's like a donkey that's just shitting all over the place. And we're sitting there with a scooper, picking it up over and over again and hoping that the donkey doesn't just spew out diarrhea. Of, <laughs> that, was, that was a horrible analogy. <laughs> a horrible this analogy. week on Art Fight Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that could be the cut it in the thing to make that the, like your review of our podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a donkey spewing diarrhea. <laughs> Oceans of diarrhea. <laughs> so anyway, I, I feel compelled to do it just as a human being. I, I don't necessarily think things are going to change, but I see that there is a route to do mm -hmm. there. There is if you were to put this into a computer and mathematically probabilistically try to calculate uh, the current trajectories and the, the the characteristics therein, it would come out laughing at you, saying there's no way you people are going to turn this around based mm -hmm. on what's what it's actually happening, based on the actual attempts at problem resolution, which is yeah. why you, you have to have a very radical move at some point. Mm -hmm. And again, the probabilities aren't for that either. Everyone lives paycheck to paycheck, mostly. They think in a short-term way. They want to have their little worlds, and they just don't have the time, ultimately, because they're trapped in debt, and they have to take care of their families and beyond and continue mm -hmm. their professions. They don't have time to consider what the next 15, 20 years is, might turn out to be. It's just 
They just have they're locked in. And that's probably the greatest, or excuse me, the most detrimental trend of what we've done to civilization. But no one has the time. It's a convenience to be an activist. That's always I always say that. It's a luxury to have the time to think about this kind of stuff because no one has the time to do it. And when yeah. they do, and when they do, they go for the most lowest hanging fruit satisfaction. They pile into a free speech zone and they yell at buildings and hold up signs. It doesn't mm -hmm. do a goddamn thing. Maybe in the 60s and 70s and a little bit more of an impression. Now it's just catharsis. Look at mm -hmm. like Rage Against the Machine. Okay, great. There's a great band. They kick, they rock and they had a social purpose, but really it's just a catharsis. They don't, they're not actually communicating educational things that will progress the world. They're letting people get angry at it. And that's, I really think actually Rage Against the Machine, other bands that do that. And I, I, I like the band, obviously, but what they're really doing socially is actually counterproductive. They're not mm. actually achieving anything that's going to progress society. They're just giving an outlet for people to express themselves without any kind of creative, you know, analytical process. There's nothing, there's no guiding method. Anyway, I'll stop that rant, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very problematic. And so I, I, basically I separate my life and I keep my art. I always joke, art is always first to me. I, that's why Inner Reflections is an in-your-face artistic work. It's like a big middle finger, in fact, to traditional activist works because I, I couldn't make that film without it being that way. That doesn't mean I think it detracts. I think art has that special ability to sneak behind the ego and just create an ambiguous place where people can realize things. And that's why it's structured the way it is. There's a lot of vignettes, uh, very abstracted scenes. I mean, they all kind of work on their own level. There's about 35 of them. And I, I think if someone really sits and absorbs it, they, they are able to achieve a certain uh, sensibility through art and music that we are familiar with that you wouldn't achieve by reading a book. My book was completely academic, by the way, that about the new human rights movement. And I translated it into this ridiculous three-hour, completely avant-garde uh, art, artistic movie, which I thought was fun too. And they, they go together. So anyone does watch the movie, I do suggest they read the book if they walk away from the movie, like, what the hell was that? Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Hey, by I the think, way, you know, I really, can I, Sorry. Yeah, please. I was just going to say that I think it's interesting to me that we just spent this whole show talking about ourselves and the people that we like and the influences we found and all of these people we've mentioned, including those present here on the screen. It's we're all totally into this whole thing of I I don't really see like a limit around what I'm what I'm supposed to do creatively or allowed to do creatively. And that's what these other people thought, too. And I think that kind of thinking this I bring this all right around. Get ready for this, guys. So earlier today, looking over some of your work, Peter, I I came across some footage of Bucky Buckminster Fuller mm -hmm. and Bucky Fuller taught at Black Mountain College in North Carolina. Right. And Black Mountain College in North Carolina was basically like the the 2.0 of the Bauhaus movement. And in my estimation, there's so much that has come up in the last 10 years, let's say, where people have rediscovered what was happening there and in Black Mountain and Black Mountain College. And and <clears throat> to me, when we look at modernism in America, you really had the Bauhaus come to North Carolina and you had people like, oh, I can't, I'm having, going to have trouble remembering his name. But you had uh, uh, a great, who was the great abstract painter who went to New York and basically taught, basically taught the first generation of American, Hans Hoffman. Oh, wow. goes, it goes there, basically basically lights the fuse on what's going to become abstract expressionism, mm -hmm. which is going to be like the fucking zenith of this whole thing in terms of the visual art world and basically sets the tone for the rest of the 20th century in uh, American and American arts and aesthetics. Now that said, I think in the 21st century, we are going to realize that what was happening with the new Bauhaus in America 
it, that's what's going to inform the 21st century. And hmm. that's what's ultimately going to re remake our whole understanding of things in a way that goes way beyond an art movement. And I think the difference in what happened there is that and the reason why it's been a bit of a slower burn is because what they were talking about was holistic and people didn't even understand what the fuck that was. Look at abstract expressionism. Look at how individualized that is. It's all about the glory of the wild painter in, the, in terms of like the Jackson Pollock sort of cliche or whatever, Right. where what, what they were doing in Black Mountain was just like, there's a total blurring of art, science, technology, everything. It's all, who knows? It could all be anything. Try it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, sure. And, and with those ideas, I think you ultimately saw people like Buck, Buckminster Fuller who are combining all these different ideas together to, to build these designs he's coming up with, that it's, it's inevitable that he then started thinking in terms of what could we just house everyone on the planet in these? Right. <laughs> and those, so I think those aesthetics lead to solutions that yeah. automatically take on that nature. Does it make sense? Absolutely. No, I'm glad you brought up Black Mountain. I had forgotten all about that. It's been years. I know that John Cage taught there as well. When I was That's at school, right. school of the Arts, there were some teachers that were still there that actually had taught at Black Mountain too. I'd like to refresh my memory of actually Black Mountain, but I think that goes back to the consilience, the sort of lumping together of different disciplines. Scientists like Fuller engaging experimental people with music. It, it does have its crossover effect. And obviously artistic creativity is where scientific innovation eventually comes from anyway. So for uh -huh. to solve problems, you have to have that kind of innovative mind. As people like Einstein always talked about, if you're not creative, obviously you're not going to come up with anything. Engineering is not going to do much for you if you don't have a creative whim. Uh -huh. you, have to start, you have to start with that hypothesis, of course. And I think music and the arts is so critical and probably why intuitively the states shut that shit down because they don't want people to be creative. They don't mm -hmm. want people to start innovating outside of the current system. So I, I'm not saying that's a conspiracy, but I think there's a, an intuition <laughs> where the arts where the arts are not really purposefully supported. I think that the, intuitively it's a threat because it mm -hmm. opens up doors. It, it allows for experimental thought. And that doesn't work in a society that wants to maintain cohesion. And that's why ultimately I think there's a lack of creative development out there and why the same people just keep producing, even the same engineers, people, these grand scientists. I have a great frustration with the Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world and Nikio mm -hmm. Kakus, because if you really look at what they do, they present themselves, they have their intelligence and their work, but they don't do anything social, nothing of any particular nature. They avoid the social context. The last scientist I know of was Carl Sagan that really mm -hmm. started talking about society from a scientific standpoint and the importance of course scientific literacy and all of that yeah so you have the whole kind of intelligentsia of these supposed people that are supposed to be saving things and helping things even going to like elon musk okay musk great he's done a lot of things who cares about going to space right now we can't even take care of ourselves we're like why are we why why are we going to invest in going to mars unless you believe in the stephen hawking's theory that we're going to basically be completely abolished soon enough so we better get this some part of the species off the planet so we can continue our uh, species uh, regeneration stephen hawking literally said that he had no confidence that we were ever going to solve the problems that we have to get off this planet before we destroy it <laughs> if, we, if, oh, no. if we expect the species to continue so hopefully that won't be the case but yeah Hey, PJ. Yeah. Hey, man, I think I know of a, a singular event in your young, when you were, when we were kids, I think I remembered what it is that might've been one of the sort of catalysts for all of the work and thinking that you've done since. Okay. Here it is. All right. Do you remember the time 
that you, I think you had just come home from school or something and there was a person asleep in your bed. <laughs> Actually, that went on for a long time. There was a home <laughs> house. Yep. Yeah, that was a very spooky and kind of sad scenario. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that maybe that was the spark. So yeah, to summarize that story, when I was young, I would come over to my father's house on the weekends and there would be all this filth in my bed. So of course my brother was the culprit for everything at that point, along with his friends like you, Brian. Mm -hmm. And the, the conclusion was that my brother's friends were sleeping in my bed and who knows what else was happening. And there's also food disappearing. And my father got really mad because <laughs> all, like, where's all the milk? Cause there's so much drinking all the milk, God damn it. And just like realized that there was a homeless person that had snuck into the house and knew our schedule and was sleeping in my room during who for who knows how long, but he was there for at least months. Like he just knew the schedule. And yeah. And my father eventually caught him. My father felt really bad for him, kicked him out, of course, into the into the cold. And I'll never forget my father read in the paper that someone was found, a homeless guy was found dead in on in the side of the street. And he felt really bad because he thought that could have been the same guy, which goes to show the sadness of the society. But we don't take care of each other. But yeah, that was very that's it's, a, quite, that's it's a heavy on one side, but it's also sad on another. Yeah. But that's I think that's a heavy, weird thing to have as a Absolutely. kid. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's a reality. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think about that, you know, quite a bit. That's a very unique anecdotal story. <laughs> uh, and of yeah. course, back then, no one, no one locked their doors, which was nuts anyway, because it was a seedy neighborhood to begin with. We just had this strange kind of naivety. And of course, friends were always coming in and out of the, out of the house. So yeah. it, was, it was just like a party house in a way. So it, I think that guy literally was there for months. I have this faint memory, in fact, of being in a bathroom. Again, I'm like 11, 12 years old yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. And I hear somebody come up the staircase and I think it's probably my brother or somebody. And I realized that there's something awkward about it. And I remember tucking myself away, waiting for more sounds. And I remember hearing him walk into my brother's room and hitting a chair as I know the sound of this chair mm -hmm. and then not, no sound. I thought I was hallucinating. I thought it was a ghost. I go into the room. There's no one there. And I think this guy was hiding, in fact, in his closet, which is even more funny because Eric, of course, would come back and blast music at the <laughs> highest possible level. And this poor bastard probably was in these closets listening to Rush. So, yeah. <laughs> It's That's back in the day too. Like when it was a like all we did was just have as many massive, loud stereo speakers as possible <laughs> oh, yeah. in the room, and it, and and the one that was in your house was loud enough to be heard for blocks. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. it rattled everything. Yeah, <laughs> That's what you, that's what you did. You had to have the biggest possible loudest sound system. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like how you just you go so hard with those kind of things. You, you don't realize like I, I'm just gonna. This is not good for our hearing, but but I, I think about like, there's a lot of really inc incredibly talented people that have come out of quite locally the world that we grew up in. And I think that it's been really cool for me personally to observe from a distance or intermittently just catching up on you and what you're doing, because it's like, it's an interesting thing, I think, to have the perspective of knowing somebody since they were really young mm -hmm. and, and having all those sort of, we had all those times back then, but then it's, wow, like I'm not looking at some person that's like a vague facsimile of themselves, which you often sadly see with people maybe that you grew up with. You're like, man, that right. guy, I wish he would have stuck with that. Or I wish he would have, that guy was actually a really good bass player or whatever. And then right. you see them fully resigned to this system, right? Like to the the woes of of life force sucking things <laughs> that people have to do, yeah. right? And you had to put those things aside. And so I, I take great 
uh, kind of pride in a weird way and, and pleasure to see what everybody else has done that has been impactful. And I get excited if a very small audience is reached by any of my records or anything. I can't imagine what it's like for you to be in a position of kind of a bit of a sort of responsibility because you've got a lot of people that have been very supportive and very interested and this sort of decentralized network of a kind of a movement and all of that. To put yourself in the front of that, it's a strange thing. I don't know how to say this in a way that makes sense clearly, but it's... Uh, it's weird when you grew up with the person to see them all of a sudden now an authoritative, very well thought out, very well manifested version of themselves. And people are listening to what they're saying. And it's great. Like, it's not a bad thing. But I guess I just wonder, like, how do you take on that as a responsibility as a person? Right. Because you're not just I make great art and then you can come to my show if you want. <laughs> it's more like. I'm really vested in this and other people really need to have some sort of tentacles in this, we hope. And you want it to spread and in and, and some way it's different than the sort of usual consumption of media because right. it's causal. So I guess in that sort of sphere of things I'm talking around, like how do you place yourself with that? How does it feel? Do you feel like it's a weird position of responsibility to be in? It is in the sense that you get a lot of contacts from people that see hope in what's been described. So I, emails I get, that's probably the most stressful thing. I've had a lot of people that hate me over the years, and that's been a stressful on some level, legally and so on. I've had to do a lot of stuff. But it's the people that contact me with the sense of hope that really makes you want to buckle down because you would feel responsible. Now, calibrate that. Obviously, I'm not a megalomaniac and I don't see myself as some leader of anything. And right. I'm just doing whatever I think I can do. And I'm actually not particularly responsible about it in the sense that I don't brand myself. I could be just as immature and flailing. I'll attack people on social media. I could be just as much like any other regular douchebag on the internet. <laughs> or, and I, But I still, I am who I am and I do take it seriously. And I, of course, don't just isolate myself with some particular focus and I keep my music going. I think it's very healthy for anybody that's trying to you know, do any kind of activism. You have to have an outlet because if this is what you're paying attention to with the world, which could be very depressing, could be very enlightening too. You gotta start looking at the problems that everyone keeps being in denial about. So I, I take it very with, the, with, the, with stride in the sense that I just don't allow that pressure really to hit me. Yeah. I don't, I, and if someone's really in earnest in their communication, I do my best to just explain that I'm just like anybody else. In fact, that's the way I want it to feel. I want people, other people out there to feel motivated to start talking about such issues or creating art or relevant media to start influencing society or engineers. As I mentioned, the scientists earlier, I, I'm still baffled that we do not have really core and core intelligentsia that's actually focused on true problems. When's the last scientist you heard talking about resolving poverty? Never. I've never heard that. Not in any particular way. They'll, they'll say strange things. Anyway, like Bill Gates will have a foundation for something. And yeah, there might be some poverty reduction as a proxy. But no, yes, you could, you could just easily solve all homelessness in Los Angeles right now with a series of grants coming from these wealthy people and build infrastructure with medical facilities inside of it. And it could be done. And it actually shocks me that people like Beth, Jeff Bezos don't do that. Yeah. They, they would be heroes. It wouldn't, yeah. even take, it wouldn't even take them that much money. They could hire all the people, the medical professionals, build these giant halfway house apartments and really work to get these people back on their feet. They would be heroes, but they still don't do it, which that's another subject speaking to the sickness of wealth and power, which I is actually a true thing. I think when people <laughs> do get wealth and power, they become far more apathetic. Uh, they know how to put on a good front, but they lose a sense of humanity. But that's for another conversation. It's, it makes more sense, though, to just, I would rather have a foundation that imparts my right. 
philosophical thinking systemically in perpetuity as opposed to just localized. I have the ability to press a button and make countless immeasurable amounts of suffering vaporize instantly. And that is not even seductive, right? Like where, even if it's not their natural tendency or whatever, isn't that still just like the way that you just, I fucked up, man. I accidentally just solved homelessness. (laughs) I woke up the next day and I I won't do it again, but. (laughs) But in answer to your question, I take a a completely humbled approach. I don't, uh, whatever degree people consider me a celebrity or whatnot or a public figure, I, I don't wear that as a badge whatsoever. And I try to just do what I do on a daily basis. As I've aged, I've gotten more mature and I've realized, of course, the limitations. I try my best. In fact, as I talk about with this, with George Carlin, he, I use this phrase, the Carlin level. George Carlin, as many know, he went through an evolution where he had a lot of socially conscious things to say and had a very, a very activist orientation. Then he finally broke. And then in these, in these cryptic interviews he did years later, he said that he couldn't allow himself to be stressed out by the human condition anymore. And that's when he decided to not give a shit anymore. That's when his entire posture changed in his later comedy, where he actually says to people, like, I don't care about you. I, I want to see you destroy yourself. So almost like a, a reverse psychology mechanism, or he just literally took the, and I think he did that for as a defense mechanism emotionally. And as I've grown and I've been frustrated, I watched my blood pressure rise and all of that. Mm. I now actively work to remove my emotionality from most of this, as I encourage other people to do as well. It's easier said than done, but yeah. If that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to really quick while we're talking about people like George Carlin and all these other names you've been mentioning uh, while we've been here. I wanted to mention that Everless Mastery book you mentioned is written by Kenny Werner. Is that sound right? right. And then what was the book you mentioned uh, around the subject of consilience? Was it consilience? The Unity of Knowledge? That's the Edward O. Wilson book, but I was referring okay. to the Xenakis master thesis called Arts, oh. Science, Alloys. That's the one that was in- influential to me in terms of principles of art and theory of art related to is, music. And, and is that something people can find and read? I, I think you could I probably find that now for free in a PDF form if you look hard enough. I don't oh, know if okay. they still sell it. If it's probably out of print. I have an old copy of it. I'd be surprised uh-huh. if... This is the... I don't think we've mentioned so many books and, and, and <laughs> records in a single episode before, so I just want to keep it straight so people can find these things if they're interested you guys good on time for a little bit or you want to go a little bit more how are you doing i could go a little bit more sure cool because i have more things i'd like to ask you about yeah sure man you're right there all right i have this weird thing we have to talk about king crimson at some point because that's a strange (laughs) point of commonality we have and we have to talk about maybe how we played in bands and things like that you you played in a band that was pushing the boundaries of what could even be done when you were whatever 15 years old you were going bonkers playing highly complex music very loud with some very good people and and that's been an interesting sort of starting point but obviously it was hugely influenced by king crimson let's just call it for what it is right that was a massive part of that and i know that there were other elements but my question ultimately is what king crimson album is your favorite and why Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I have to say discipline. It's right in the middle of that kind of multi-generation. Yeah, there's some great songs, but also has great ambition. Songs like actually three of a perfect pair is competing, though, I have to admit. Um, That's that generation. The early stuff, it's hard to bracket Crimson in because it's really multiple bands. that Now it's even a new formation that's going back to their 70s roots, which I saw a little while back, which is pretty incredible. But Crimson came along later generation in that band, though. Dave, Jeff, and I started that band when we were like 11 or 12. Yeah. And I think we finally broke up around the 15-year-old, 16-year-old period, if I yeah. remember correctly. But we didn't, Crimson was was 
not actually on the table until later in the, that generation of the band. Be a mm. lot of Pink, Pink Floyd influence, a lot of the kind of traditional, you know, rock yeah. influence. Of course, Rush and stuff like that. So, but, um, well, I have this thing, man. If you're, if you said discipline, and I was, I thought immediately. Okay, perfect, because I want to mark that point and then look at the trajectory of a couple other bands and mark what I believe to be the similar point and why I feel like I there's a there's a, a part of every band's trajectory, especially in the sort of prog and whatever world, where I, I always like the album most that's after whatever their most maybe commercially successful thing was hmm. they're doing a follow-up to, and it's somewhere between striving for continuing their sort of marketability and pleasing the label. But at the same time, it's never going to be what it was. So discipline, I feel like maybe is not exactly that, but it's the fully formed young adult version or adult version of that band. And I think it's the most, obviously Adrian Ballou like elevates things, but I was watching some live stuff from like 82, 83, and I was just like, this is as good as it could have ever, ever been. And obviously I'm a real Baloo fan, but, right. but then I think about like Rush, Signals is my favorite album. Oh, yeah. Di Discipline's my favorite. It's, it's, it's a strange point of having evolved enough to be able to really put songs together right. with a little bit of experimental sonically, but not going completely off the deep end in one way or the other. And it's not, and it's confident because it's not trying to dazzle. It's not trying right. to just lure and confuse. It's, it's just a more confident assertion, I feel like. And, mm -hmm. and there's something about this. And then Pink Floyd, Animals, is yeah. the same, uh, where it's like... Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Weird, yeah, like a weird middle point. And then maybe Zeppelin would be like Presence, mm -hmm. uh, where it's like the strange kind of... They were starting to get advanced, but they didn't... But John Paul Jones hadn't gone off the rails with synthesizers yet. Right. You know, or whatever. What is that about? It's just interesting to see. I think people just get, they, as far as the ambition stuff, let's interrupt you. I think that yeah. after a while, it, they, people just want to change. I think that when you get a band that's so locked in, they're, they're in such great harmony in the sense that they work so, the chemistry is so good. At some point, it, it's inevitable that it starts to break. And I think that's where, that's probably why Crimson's multiple generations are so important. It's almost like Robert Fripp knew when the time was up. And he had to reconfigure and he had to reconfigure again. That that trajectory in terms of music history, I think, is probably one of the more interesting. And going back to the combination of things, like Three of a Perfect Pair, there are songs on there that are actually completely abstracted composi compositions, but in ways that no one prior had ever done. Not like avant-garde, not like free jazz, but like literally like classically conce conceptualized pieces that are improvisatory, but groundbreaking. No one ever did anything like that. Of course, now you have the whole progressive generation up to like Tool and Meshuggah, and you get to see all this new trajectory that was born out of effectively that Crimson Foundation, which is, I think, it must be really surreal to be Robert Fripp these days to realize how extensive his influence has. <laughs> and then you have, of course, Frank Zappa, too. And I, I, one of the things I loved about Zappa, which was important artistically, is his layer of satire. Here you got a guy that basically decided to pollute, <laughs> not pollute, I, I, his sense of humor to me was always difficult uh, in some cases, but the musicality is so insanely strong, and then he over lays it with this ridiculous satire in so many examples. And I had actually drew that influence directly when I did Into Reflections, because I wanted there to be elements of satire. For example, there's a science fiction layer, which gets very absurd, but it's a conversation between two people, and they're having a very serious conversation about two different perspectives of reality, which is prevailing today, as far as 
I'm concerned, the Malthusian perspective and then a progressive perspective that says, yes, we can transcend poverty and all of that. But I entrenched it in a completely absurd satire. And I always had Zappa in the back of my mind when I did that. By the way, next year, Crimson or this year, Crimson's going on tour with the Zappa band. So that's something to look out for. Yeah. All you Zappa and Crimson fans out there. What's going on with the Zappa band? Is that does that have anything to do with Dweezil, or isn't there some kind of like family rivalry or something happening in the Zappa clan right now? I thought that was I thought, I thought that was Dweezil. If it's not, I'm I'm mistaken. Maybe it is. Maybe he's not yeah. in it all the time. I'm not sure if he, yeah. he's constantly there. I heard. I just heard that there. Were, I think there was some kind of infighting with the Zappa world, but I don't know what that was. Uh, I haven't seen that new. Do- I haven't seen that new documentary about him either. Have you seen that film? I have. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty okay, good. cool. Yeah, Zappa is. A, he just a fascinating artistic character, very full of contradictions and his, his whole attitude and the fact that he carried over into the political context is always enjoyable. He just think what a unique, uh, rare mind. It's too bad he died so young. Mm-hmm. Isn't it strange that, like, we had this whole period of the time in the the eighties and the nineties with the uh, sort of Tipper Gore and all that. We had this period of time where it was, it became almost normal that we would have D Snyder from Twisted Sister on the floor or Zappa testify. Like, what happened to that? What the hell was going on back then? <laughs> it's the dawn of the censorship. Like some crazy musician in there being like, let me tell you what's going on. Yeah, it was the censorship trials. That was the yeah. they were trying to put the label on the CD for the lyrics. Yeah. And everyone fought back and rightfully. Yeah, that, that is surreal to look at back at those hearings for sure. Well, Zappa was the sane one, though. Zappa was the one that didn't come off like a D. Schneider and with all the, the glam and the ridiculous appearance. He knew how to, to posture himself in a highly articulate way. And of course, his criticisms of religion are very good, too. Like anyone can go to YouTube now and see a whole new level of Zappa because he really had such so much more to contribute than just his his musical innovation. Mm, yeah. yeah, his stuff is really Actually, I've I never went full Zappa, <laughs> but I've definitely dabbled in a lot of Zappa, and then I just hadn't for a long time. There is something I don't know what it is, and I find this curious too. Or de- depending on the state of the world and maybe how I'm feeling or whatever's going on, where I am, returning to particular music and having a completely different relationship to it is so fascinating to me. It just tells me how sub- subjective it is, not just to the work itself, but all the surrounds and your perception and everything else, because whatever it is, the Zappa stuff has really been hitting the spot. It's been feeling good. And I think it's like in the way you talked about earlier, like that kind of catharsis, uh, Rage Against the Machine catharsis. I think that the satire, but the wit and execution, like it's qualified to say, fuck you in a way, however the hell it wants. In the same way that Carlin, damn well knew that he you had a sense that he knew what he was talking about because he said it with such certainty and rhythm and cadence and flow, mm-hmm. and it just rang more true I, I find that really interesting yeah carlin always said that the well, the time he got really big was that he finally became completely honest because he was always trying to fit a mold back in the 50s and 60s doing Las Vegas clubs and in-house stuff and gimmicky stuff, just like Richard Pryor. In fact, the moment those guys decided to be completely who they were was uniquely when they blew up, which says something. And going back to Zappa, the cool thing about Zappa's existence is he never, ever compromised about anything. He was able to carve out exactly what he wanted to communicate. He never had anyone tell him that he couldn't do it or he never 
never had. Yeah, there's no way in the back of his mind he had a sense of commerciality. There's <laughs> nothing even closely parallel to what he was doing. But yet he built something and people came after he built it. And I think that's another artistic thing. I think people, even if they're not confident and they, you know, for whatever reason, they should st- simply stick true. I mean, I, my original Zeitgeist film, people can love it or hate it. You know, it's been a long time. I've, I've moved on from a lot of the, the stuff that's in that movie and focus on more important things. But that film was musically driven. And I did that film as a very honest piece. I never had any intention to release it. I wasn't planning on releasing that film. In fact, I couldn't. It was made of illegal footage. I just happened to throw it up on Google Video at the time. And what I draw from that, because it went super viral, is that my deliberate honesty, I had no intention to be impressionable. I had no intention to to do anything. It was just me and one project. I'm going to do this. I was working. I wanted to do something for myself, musically, multimedia. And I had these themes that I enjoyed. And then it blew up. When that it speaks to the innocence uh, and the integrity of being completely and utterly truthful to yourself. And if you're truthful to yourself, other people will sense that and it'll become sympathetic. And then it takes on a life of its own, as we see with people like Zappa and Pryor and, and other great artists as well. That's really where they come from. So, Joe, how come we never got a Zappa Pryor collaboration? That's the only thing that we didn't get. Mm. <laughs> that, been- that would have been nice. That would have been bizarre. Uh, I'm sure Zappa would do that if, if he had the opportunity. Yeah, like so, a buddy cop movie. <laughs> we need new kinds of mashups. Oh. We need a comedy music mashup. Yeah, yeah. That'd be funny. Hey man, so how does it feel when you go back? Uh, you, you shared with me this archive recording of your. You know, I, I saw you had put that out on social as well of your early band, teenage band. Mm. When you go back and you hear that stuff, irrespective of the technical recording details or whatever, what do you think about it, or what do you feel when you revisit it? When it's you, it's always impressive. Because we came as young kids from an intuitive place. Even when I was in in school, that none of the music that we wrote was born from an over-intellectualized place. There were ambitious things for sure, but the songwriting to me actually stands out more than anything else. Again, we were kids, but we did we do epic things and huge prog things with polymetric stuff. And yes, there was that element of immaturity now that I think about it. But our songwriting stuff actually was pretty cool. And that's something yeah. I've been trying to get in touch with them recently and love to bring them back and do like a reunion after so many years just to see how it would feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've played at other bands since then, but there's something special about that because Again, you're so young, it comes from such a unique place. And there's an odd maturity to it. There's a strange kind of maturity to it coming from kids that had no real life experience. But it just goes to show, it shows the power of the influences that we had at the time where you can embrace that feeling. The, I, for example, going back to the George Carlin influence, I, I wouldn't be who I was if I wasn't listening to George Carlin as a teenager. He mm-hmm. set the path, for example, of all the things that I talk about in a way to this day, just because he made me, a, made me think about it. It just planted these seeds of the social distortion, but through his art of comedy. And I think the same thing could be said for a lot of musical stuff, or even bands that had more of a socially conscious bent. Even in my high school years, bands like Tool that came along, and you look at the lyrics, you look at the sensibility of it, it had a a certain profoundness to it, which shapes people whether they know it or not. And I think there's great power in all of that. I can't emphasize that enough, subconsciously probably, but now today, kids are listening. I sound like an old man. Kids are listening to all this. I don't see the depth in the creation and much of the music that's being generated today, as far as I'm concerned, versus the stuff from before. And I I think the repercussion of that will be felt if the arts continue its commercialized decline, because that's what it's doing. It's all of its embracing of the commerciality and the superficiality. So anyway, I could ramble on about shit like that forever. You're talking about that electronic music. 
<laughs> I like electronic music, but it's just, it's not, it's, I, don't, I can't even describe it. There's just, a, maybe again, maybe I'm disconnected. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's still great bands out there doing stuff. But when I look at what youth culture seems to be most predominantly interested in through you know, social media, it, I, I'm, I feel alienated. But then again, maybe that's just because I'm an old man. Isn't that how it works? Yeah. When you get older, you're not supposed to understand the music right. of the prior generation. So right. yeah. just, like, just like people that loved Elvis and they can't understand Frank Zappa. Yeah, it's weird too because I think when I was a little kid, I could look back at music and see how it got to the stuff that I liked. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it didn't seem weird at all. It seemed made total sense to me then. Yeah. But I find myself all the time doing what you just wisely did, which is don't go too far down the trail of this is shit what these kids are doing nowadays because uh, what the fuck do you know? Sure, you, sure. It, the perspective thing is real. It's really, it can be very difficult to understand how we got there because that seems in some cases. Now there's other cases too, where I'm sure you're finding music that's new music nowadays that I come across stuff all the time where I'm like, see some young people making some new kind of music and it's, that's fucking righteous, man. I love that shit. You know what I mean? So sure, sure. there's that too. It's just, uh, it's, I think it's, it's the, the world of music has changed so much really over the course of our generation. Even if you were buying cassettes and CDs and things like that, you were still going to the record store. You know what I mean? So sure. it hadn't changed that much over over our lifetime and then really it's like this next generation where it's you know, like my godson who like grew up online you know what i mean it's right. a totally different world for him in terms of what music even is sure so crazy it is. I guess the pattern of fusion is is the best you could hope for. You go back to the classical period or the Baroque period, and you had a very rigid form of style. And then you know, pop music was very consistent in the 40s and 50s. And then suddenly the 60s and 70s happened. People dropped acid. Suddenly everything started to combine together. That's where you got the freeing of the dissonance by Schoenberg, where suddenly people didn't even respect the 12 notes of the piano anymore. They jumbled it all up and created new configurations that were atonal. And I think all that is beautiful. The beginning of the end. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of why I like multimedia stuff these days and most of the music that i tend to, to to create in the future that i'm working on i intend to have screens and make it very much of, a, of an encompassing immersive sort of environment maybe with theatrical stuff so that's not the thing too and that's not something else i learned from zanakis zanakis was doing that stuff in the 40s and 50s with lights in uh, california he did this huge like 45 minute piece with these giant sirens and these huge old these light systems like early kind of laser systems just wacky in hindsight but he, he did it he was one of the first to really do multimedia in fact he's a, he's considered a pioneer of multimedia and multiple sensories multiple sensory influence so i'm definitely into that that's right our, our uh guest from was it last week brian when we talked to brianna or was it two weeks ago Two weeks ago, yeah. Two weeks ago, we talked to a painter who's a tenant. She's from tennis. Or I don't know if she's actually from Tennessee, but she lived in Knoxville for a long time, went to school in Chattanooga. Now she's at Yale doing painting. And her, her recent series was all about interpreting music as color and got into this whole discussion with her last week about that. Synesthesia. Is that what that's called? We talked about that a bit. Yeah. Basically, every week that one of my questions to the guest is, are you a synesthete? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's starting to happen more and more. But no, I guess like a wide array of people here. But one of the things I really enjoyed the most in the history of this podcast was when we were talking to Wayne White about the value that he got out of being a short order cook. And, it, you know, it's so the guy that Wayne White is the guy that did all of the Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse stuff. And he's a very noted artist and set designer and puppeteer and all this. And, but when you talk about like 
short order cooking with him, he was just talking about how he took a lot of care. Like, sure. What did he call it, Joe? It was something like a make right, or there was some phrase he had about it. Like, a yeah, it was good. I can't remember either, but yeah, it was about it was about right purpose kind of thing. And if you're making the burger, make the fucking burger and make it great. <laughs> sure, that's a good ethic, right? Yeah. I mean, any menial task, if you really want to put thought into it, becomes a becomes an artistic thing. Just washing dishes, you can think of all sorts of unique things to to consider and the, the fluidity of your motion. Percussion as well. Is, That's your next YouTube channel idea. <laughs> washing Walk dishes meditation, yeah. Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> that speaks again to the beauty of percussion, as I just commented on. Everything is a kind of expression of motions related to percussiveness. So even the most menial task, if you think about it in the execution of a really nice phrase and on a drum set, you can apply that. I think that's a good philosophy. People get frustrated by menial tasks. Obviously, we all have to do them to a degree, but that's the kind of meditation that people should take to that. Yeah. 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 I think that's like all of us here have the problem of being pretty decent at a lot of things and then trying to figure out how to negotiate your skill set to get to whatever it is that you actually want to accomplish or do and figuring out what the balances of those skills to use or, or lean into or whatever. But I, but I do think that one of the things that helps people the most is just if you just, yeah, think about everything as a sacred little act as much as you can. And just like the way he was talking about it, just neatening things a certain way with a particular purpose. And I'm not saying be OCD and weird or anything. I'm just saying, hold on, let me straighten all this stuff out. But it's, it's just about trying to assign meaning in even the most seemingly meaningless ways or times in your experience or time. And I, I think that's a really huge thing. So uh, we should probably turn the corner on this and get out of here because it's gone long, but I'd love to have you back, man. Obviously, we, there's a whole sure, more we can talk about, especially yeah. because I really want to get into some of the more the, the guts of the filmmaking process for you because one of the things that you've done with Interreflections is really the amount of work that it takes to, I know how hard it is to do what you've done, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. it's not just shooting scenes and having good lighting and, and uh, it's like all of the green screen stuff and all of the coordination and the elements and the, the look feel and all of the, it's bridging somewhere between aesthetic of hyper real and, f f but also darkly, not darkly, but starkly human. Sure. It's negating, it's, it's navigating those extremes. Maybe you can just, before we go, illuminate a little bit about interreflections, your process with that, what was good, what sucked, why you would never do it again, all that. <laughs> the, the process was absolutely brutal. And if it wasn't for the fact that I had some backing through an Indiegogo campaign where many people contributed and, and thankfully so, I probably would have canceled the project once I realized what I had put myself into. Thousands of hours, people will criticize the movie from a standpoint of complete ignorance because they, as you just said, they have no fucking clue what it takes to go into to shoot and to process some of this stuff, which is why independent filmmakers that are working on such a low budget and i don't mean low budget in the sense of hollywood oh it's a low budget movie it only costs 12 million dollars yeah. no that's that's this is truly low budget and the labor and development it's i will say that the overall approach when i was working it out was more of a stage feel 
and this might sound strange. I don't know if you remember the scene where it pans to a stage where the two male characters that are in a great debate are talking. It's they, they revert back to the stage a few times. It's, there's a couple different meanings for that, but one of the meanings has to do with the fact that the whole film is a stage. The whole film is designed to be self-aware. It's very meta, which is why it's so self-referential throughout throughout the film as well. It breaks you know the fourth wall all the time and stuff like that. But the green screen stuff, I didn't care for it to look real. I wanted it to look stylized and get the embracement of it, but I wanted to you know find that sweet spot. But instead of trying to be realistic, which was not going to be possible, and I think that's probably the, the dangerous line with a film like this, because people are so spoiled, they get to watch a Marvel movie that costs $200 million to make, and they look at something like this, which has the courage to try and do something in a, in a synthetic way, which again, independent filmmakers would never touch that. They would never do that for obvious reasons. Uh, and so they judge it by that. And I, I have to I state that because it's gotten under my skin a little bit when I listen to people that do criticize it. They just they don't like what it, how it looks. And what I say to that is that it's actually quite consistent consistent in its inconsistency and that's part of the point of it and that's another thing to say about like it's like a recording like if you have an album and then you record something on an eight track and on the same album you have something recorded with a million dollar mixer and digital you don't put it, the tracks on the same album because they're going to sound completely inconsistent got that joe <laughs> <laughs> you look at listen to these old that, that old tape recording of John Lennon when he's on the boat and he's on like he just has his guitar and he's recording his new album that he had just been inspired by. You could listen to just that crappy recording and get the same nuance and beauty of what he had written. So the overproduction stuff, it's again it's a spoiled culture in that way. But in terms of the structure of the film and the way I approached it, it's three different narratives and they could even be broken out, which I'm considering doing. It's also a series of vignettes designed strategically for a short attention span world. I designed those vignettes in a way where I can, as I'm doing now, I post these scenes on YouTube to inspire people to watch the entire movie how, in, as a part of it, but also because I think the scenes stand on their own. Right? They have value in and of themselves. So it's, it's self-referential in that way too. The movie does not have to be perceived in one total way, but even though it's got the, it's got the arc of the sci-fi layer it could be broken up it could be looked at in many different perspectives and i think that was important for me and there's also an improvisatory nature for it as well which is why there are certain scenes and certain things that happen that don't quite fit into the structure that is mostly uniform but i wanted that too i, I wanted there to feel a, a great deviation in the experience when people watched it so that coupled with the fact that it's based on a book that's completely academic as i said before adds intrigue to it and i think the i think i think my favorite parts of it really are the things that people most cringe at and those are the silent film horror layer stuff that's really what kind of the what inspired the root of it so i have the the young girl named 23 ostensibly you don't know she doesn't say anything the entire time and you have all these weird scenes i really enjoyed that i think personally the most even though again most people say they like the academics of the future more again which is a sort of a satire on academics they're in the future and they're looking back at what this life was today and they're able to use 2020 hindsight and the great debate love the dialogue there it took forever to write the, the time it took just to write this thing i sat in a little corner of my apartment methodically trying to stay sane with piles of, of notes because I, I have to i start my process with it, just notes i have hundreds and hundreds of pages of written notes that contain all of these general themes from my book and writings. And I have this ridiculous process of breaking them all down and reconsolidating, labeling them, reconsolidating. It's, it takes about seven rounds to when mm -hmm. I finally have a set that I feel will work in a linear way and get to the points across that I want. One thing I'm going to do fairly soon is make a director's commentary for the entire film. I've been writing this for a while because I don't think people pick up on the, the vast majority of the symbolism that's in it. I don't mm -hmm. think they really understand the references that are in it. 
and I feel like I literally, unfortunately, have to explain it at least to a fair degree. And I, and oddly enough, I think that's actually going to be more inspiring for people when they go back to watch it. It's going to be more satisfying. It's kind of like when you go back to a movie like 2001: Space Odyssey, more about how it was made, you respect it more. Hopefully, that would give the film a little bit credence because it is a tough project and a lot of people can't get through it and again i, I like it <laughs> and I, there are a lot of people that a lot of people do get it and i'm glad that they do and i do intend to make two more sequels but i'm not going to do it on green screen or in the same way and, 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 and they're not going to be three hours long no, fuck that <laughs> the, the sequel is four minutes long <laughs> that'd be funny actually pj took 12 minutes to make it <laughs> And it costs $20 million. <laughs> no, but I, so how do you feel? Because when we're talking about going back and listening to, say, our favorite Ben's records or whatever, and you revisit them. And we, hey, Brian, really quick. I don't, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but I got to roll. Okay. So it's great talking to you guys. Thanks for yeah, being man. on the show. I'll come back on because this was a blast. Absolutely. Have fun. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks, Joe. Thank Take you. Care. Bye. Bye. Real quick, PJ. Hey, what's up? When you talk about revisiting past things, I'm curious how you feel when you re when we when you revisit the first Zeitgeist piece that you made. Because invariably, when I look back at anything, it's very rare that I can look back at something that far back and actually be a hundred percent still good with it. Especially because video is, uh, is a different piece now entirely. So, sure. uh, like, how do you feel like when you see that? If, I mean, not that you go back and watch it every day. I'm just saying, but if you even just think about it. I reprocessed the film recently and had to update a subtitle. So I actually went through that film line by line recently, which oh. was surreal after all this time. Uh. And I've still, I because the music, excuse me, because the film is musically based. I mean, I composed all the music for that film ultimately first. And that music runs front to end. I've never done that since, by the way. I did a lot of music for the sequels, and less for the third one, quite a bit for the second one but nothing with the same level of inspiration. I think that's really what carries that film and its aesthetic. Think about it, the film starts off with three and a half minutes of a black screen with a Buddhist Buddhist guy named Trungpa Rinpoche giving a little speech on spirituality. Now, the fact that, that film started with that, <laughs> would that fly today? People still watch it. I still see the reports and the statistics. But it's the just scores go like, like first right. seconds. Oh, I haven't seen like the girl in the thumbnail yet. So yeah. that the, there's just a strange power to that movie and its structure. And of course, the content is very important. It yeah. also has a narrative quality to it that is very much uh, dr dramatized. And I will admit that there was there is a drama inherent to the way the narratives are spoken in that film. Yeah. And people will detest that and say you're misleading there or you should provide more evidence for this or you should have a counter argument to this. Well, it's not a documentary, really. It's an artistic expression and you don't really see anything much like that. Now, it's one side of me when you look at what's happened with conspiracy culture today in the Trump administration, there are a lot of these themes that are just taken without any rational thoughts, so not themes per se in my film, but taken in such an insane Alex Jonesian perverted world that people I've met people that have basically misinterpreted my film to such a vast degree that they think somehow I am in cahoots or I agree with the outstanding ridiculousness of what we see today. And that is frustrating. And I had a Vice interview where we, they talked about all of that a couple of years back. People could read that interview. I was even contacted by the Rolling Stone not that long ago, and they were asking me to do some kind of YouTube revival interview where they were, not revival, YouTube historical uh, retrospective, that's what it was. And they, I, I felt like they were trying to bracket me in as some conspiracy theorist 
as Leto. That's the stigma of that film, naturally. And I realized that they were trying to get me to basically be that guy that had his viral video, but yet he was completely full of shit. So I wrote this long email treatment in response to his questions, explaining that what the foundation of this film was and what my what the purpose was. And I, it, they didn't publish any of it, which didn't fit their MO. So right. I, I think I, I, I got away from that one. But... Uh, <laughs> It's a big stigma, but it's also a big honor that that film, which was completely organic in its development, still has the effect that it does. And if people get it properly, of course, if they... Do you ever feel like you're chasing the Tom Sawyer? You know what I mean? This magic thing happened that sort of had me out of the gate in this way that I never really could have ever designed. But now I'm here and I'm continuing and you've got all the sort of addendum and you've got all the things, right? But do you ever find yourself wondering, is there something maybe that I've lost because of just time? And this is what happens, right? When you just do when you keep trying at the same thing to try to, and I appreciate, by the way, I want to say this is very important, actually, in all seriousness, I can very much appreciate the struggle that you've been through where you're trying to articulate and communicate concepts and ideas that you feel passionate about and trying to constantly figure out, okay, let me pull this back. Let me come at it from this angle with this kind of approach. And it's not a disingenuous thing. It's really a a testament to the complexity of some of the thought and the the feeling and everything that's behind it for you. So I guess I'm just curious about like how, when I, I'm paralleling everything that I'm asking you with my own experience, I suppose, I may be projecting a little bit, but I sort of think about successes that I had early on that were massive, that could have never been planned right. ever in a million years. Luck have no idea. Obviously the material was worthy of whatever that success was at the time, but I could have never architected this result ever. And then later on, I feel like I've been doing the same thing with the same fervor, not the same style or thing, but I've been evolving the same me down the line for 20 years since then. Like how strange it is that there's these moments of activity with the sphere or whatever's out there, the ether. And then, so I guess I'm just curious about that with you. The, the convergence of time, none of us can predict what is going to spark something, especially if it's, there are probably recipes in the mainstream that they know what they're doing and they promote it just enough and they can spend millions of dollars in marketing and they're going to get a result that a pop artist or a, a major film or TV show will get a statistically consistent result. It's my, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's groundbreaking. It doesn't necessarily mean it actually, you know, sparks something new. And I think Zeitgeist was one of those examples. Absolutely. I could never repeat anything like that, nor would I try. I don't think that Inner Reflections is literally the, another level of that. I know that it's not digestible for a lot of people. Uh, but then again, I didn't know that you know, Zeitgeist would be so such a hit in that sense, in the sense of so many people instantly liking it, which was the case. Yeah. So I, I stand behind, as I said before, the, the, the integrity of it all. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm not going to allow commerciality to really influence it. I'm not going to let necessarily social pressures influence it. And I stay true to what I think works or what I think needs to be presented. I, yeah, that's the best you can hope for. But I completely understand what you're saying. I've thought about that. I've said to myself, what if I just restructured what I did before? Maybe I could achieve more popularity and, and reinvigorate some things. But I think that's the mistake. It's listen to a band that tries to do that. You can, you can see right through it. Yeah. Uh, it's like... Uh, you know, I believe it or not, I, I did a video for Black Sabbath. I don't know if yeah. you were. Yeah, and it was bizarre because they used all this old footage from the Zeitgeist film trilogy, which looked horrible, but that's what they wanted. Yeah. And, but I, that was a unique case because they had Rick Rubin with Ozzy back in the band. 
and they you can hear they're trying to recreate the original Sabbath sound. You can hear the contrivance, but I have to give them credit because it actually pulls off. Some of those tracks actually do kick some serious ass in the traditional Sabbath way, but you still have that attempt to recreate something that once was, and I think that's generally dangerous, so I try to stay away from that. Yeah. As a producer, you're faced with some interesting questions if you're taking that project on because you're like you're probably torn between wanting to really just start something anew from where everybody is right now. But in this case of maybe Black Sabbath, you're like, these people are a little unwieldy by nature. Uh, <laughs> and so maybe what we need to do is just get everybody back to like common, under mutually understood ground and approach to then begin with, like, where do we leave off? Okay, this is the last thing we all remember from the same time and place when we were doing this. And then you probably have to reassimilate in some strange way as a producer. I would imagine it's a challenge to go between that. Every band we've ever loved, too, like you think about Rush, whatever. Every, I remember when I was young and Rush records were coming out in the 80s, and it was always like, the next one's going to be like their return to their right. rock roots. And, and I was too blind at the time, too young, 15, 12 years old, whatever, 11, where I was like, no, don't go back. Go forward. And they always right. did. I find it so funny that, and people don't realize this, that are younger than maybe 35, but it's like, there was a huge, okay, we have the Cold War, okay, big deal. And then there was synthesizers versus electric guitar in popular music. There was this embattlement in every magazine. Every <laughs> Everything was about like guitar versus synth kind of thing. And the guitar player would say synths suck because of this. And then people would say guitars suck because of this. And they were competing for the same space in music and in the marketplace of viability of instrument or whatever. It was a very strange thing. But it, this went on for years. Yeah, People can't even fathom that now because synthesizers have become so fetishized and uniquely... Sure born unto themselves which by the way side note what's your musical sort of toy of choice right now i have my v drum kit and speaking of the the cold wars of, of technology there are people that still think acoustic drums is all there should be right electric drums percussion is sacrilege which is just another traditionalized debate but in an apartment and actually i like it aside from the fact that i have to be in an apartment and i can't make that much noise but i'd like i like the freedom of what electronic percussion allows for you because you can change the instruments you have whole different approaches you can take the entire technique can be different and more fluid in a way because you're not having to deal with the dynamic problems of hitting a drum and sonority stuff so that's my big v drum kit is what i, I try to work on i'm also learning a little bit more guitar as a sort of a, a mental exercise i i'm fascinated with learning and yeah. I, I, I it's like how the how do we do any of this because it's fascinating that your brain can absorb processes and then execute them but you can't really be conscious of them it's like telling a classical pianist to explain how they memorize a whole concerto they can't do it it's a completely unique process so i'm trying to learn guitar as if a complete beginner and i just do a little bit a day to decide just to feel what it's like you know what i mean to, to go back to that starting point but I have lots of other instruments. I play kinjira and a lot of hand percussion. Not as much as I used to. And I have a, a nice electronic uh, Zen drum, a five octave marimba that's made out of wood, but it's actually a MIDI instrument, which is nice. So hopefully I can get another project going with all these instruments. And again, that kind of Zappa style thing I was talking about. Basically the compositions I'm working on now deal with uh, kind of looping process based around my drum set and electronic stuff. And then I want to design uh, a set, so to speak, with multiple instrumentalists that come in and out of the environment against the multimedia backdrop with some socially conscious themes ultimately. So that should be interesting. If I've ever, if I've ever, ever have time to do it. Um, like maybe you should try to be a little bit more ambitious. I don't yeah, know. Right? Well, that's just, I guess, the way I think. I, I just I have to, that's just. No, I, I, I love that though. And, and this is your, 
it runs in the family. It's a really cool thing. And I think that in my own way, I have taken on a lot of things that I just never would have thought that I would have taken on and gotten, you know, pretty, pretty deep with a lot of different sort of like, there's a whole phase of my life where I was just producing records and running a studio. And I learned a million things and did a million things. And there's other phases of my life where, like I was telling you, I just went back to school for fun. Just to, I guess I'm taking Jewish film and fiction now to see what that's about or whatever. And then yeah. like just doing the, that kind of Renaissance period stuff. And then, and then in these latter years running, like doing drone cinematography and all that, mm -hmm. it's really interesting to have my hands in the past with a lot of things that I'm doing and right on the bleeding edge of new visual language being created with drones and all that. And right now we're just past the, if you look at photography and you think about like people, their first thoughts were like, I'll take a picture of people, landscape, whatever. And then somebody, Stieglitz or whoever was like, I'm going to take an abstract photograph. And then all of a sudden, bam, something, a whole other language with the technology growing approach. So I feel like drones are the same way. Yeah, sure. It's been a really interesting sort of uh, thing to come out of. I feel like where we came from, provided us a strange amount of motivation. Have you ever really thought about that? We were all really hungry to do a lot and we were all pushing the boundaries and doing very ambitious things that most of our friends or kids were not trying to do. Me and, and your brother running a magazine mm -hmm. you know, and whatever, all these things that are like, we didn't have computers. We didn't have, we didn't even know what the rest of the world was doing or was up to. We, we just... <laughs> We just did stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Now the ambition, yeah, the, the Necromancer magazine, of course, then that's that's archived online now, from what I understand. Yeah, I, you I, guys I, were only you guys were only like fourteen or something. That's that's you're inspired, basically. And I think that's the yeah. loss when kids are growing up if they don't have inspiration. My brother was very inspiring with his musical interest that carried over to me, and then that I was lucky, as I said, to get involved in a conservatory environment at a very young age. So that trajectory yeah. it was very fortunate. But even going back to my friends, again, as you said earlier, you try to see where people are today. And I'm ha I'm pr proud to see that some of them you know, are still working creatively and such. And then there's some that have no longer here and died of drug overdoses and so on as well. But you know, that happens as well, too. But Winston-Salem, North Carolina was an interesting place uh, in its own way. It, I, I don't regret it. Everyone, everyone usually hates their hometown. But uh, there was something unique in the creative development of that city, at least in our circles. Yeah. And at that time, I feel like that it's a little bit different just more populous and i don't know we, we had to find our own way we had to we were the we're the last of the analog humans where you had to go up the street to figure out what was going on tonight and figure out how to get i don't know just everything was so loose and experiential and we we got to enjoy a lot of the minutiae of the in-between space of life. I'm not sure if we're going to find the party tonight or I'm not like there was no, we were drinking from uncertainty at all times with all things and just taking wild stabs at what we, I got this, I stole this book from the library because I didn't have a card, but I figured this out. It was like that kind of thing. <laughs> hey, by the way, uh, we'll wrap here in a second, but I just wanted to say that this has been my, I think, if you, have you ever messed with an Octatrack? No, I have not. I've heard of it though. Okay. Let me just tell you something. Mm-hmm. I don't have one to sell, so I'm not trying to sell you one. Okay. You would love it. Okay. Because it is essentially like Ableton in a box. It's okay. fully hardware, fully disassociated, dollless. You're not, you're, you can just do your own thing. But basically, it's a performance sampler. But you can do the most insane, crazy things with it and create sequences and polyrhythmic things. and Like an, an Echoplex or is it? Uh, no, it's, it's. Okay, so 
it's think about it like this. It can be used like an echoplex. It's got mm -hmm. channel eight tracks on it that you can assign the functionality. Does it, is it just going through to another thing? Is it being sampled and looped and played back? Am I just automating, like capturing the first 16 beats of every second thing to pull over here and then resample and then trigger here, that kind of stuff. But you can do a lot of, you can create sequences that are full compositions, but you can also just create parts. But it's got these ways of blending, it's got LFOs, it's got effects. You basically put samples into it and then mangle them in whatever crazy ways that you want. It's a weird like uh, barrier to entry device, all the electron stuff is, where it's, it's hard to learn and it keeps people out of it. But then a few basic things and you're in and then you can really sure. go to town. And nice. it's, it's one of the few things to be this big. I just did two records on it. Wow. And they, it's because I've been trying to get away from the, the computer experience and mm. I don't look at a screen anymore. I'll go back to the old days, but, uh, but I didn't even realize that like the kids today call it dollless. There's a whole dollless movement. Right. I was like, oh, I just wanted to go back to how I did stuff in the 90s. And I realized there's like a movement now of like how I did stuff in the 90s. Yeah, but, all, hard, all hardware based. Absolutely. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I would highly recommend checking out the Octatrack. It is a, it is a beautiful yeah. universe. So a link for that just so I can remind myself. I want to check yeah. it out. Because I'm actually in the process of trying to build out some, some stuff for this project that one yeah. day I'll have time to do. <laughs> I've used the pandemic as a, this is like one of these machines that's been around for a while that is just, it's so daunting and seemingly to get into. And I've, I just took advantage of it fully mid midway last year. I finally just dove in and I literally just was doing, working on it for 12 or 14 hours a day wow. cool. for a few weeks and got there. So it's okay. All right. It's been so fun to learn new stuff, new devices, and I appreciate you going back and learning guitar just to, just to feel what it's like to suck at something and try it. <laughs> yeah. And analyze the process of what learning is. Uh, you know, this, that old uh, Tim Galloway. Remember that book, The Inner Game of Tennis? Did you ever read any of these inner game books? He's a gimmicky guy. But in the 80s, he wrote a bunch of books. He started with The Inner Game of Tennis. And his thesis is that you can't think about anything that you're doing when it comes to what you've already learned. You have to learn it and it has to be compartmentalized in a way for execution. And he applied that to tennis. You know, his comment was every hit I ever made in tennis that was good was something I never thought about. And that's something I think that we can all relate to when it comes to execution of anything. But that's always mesmerized me. And I think there's a danger in analytically. I think I went down that road where I just really try to want to overly understand. I didn't understand the need to not understand, if that makes any sense, where you have, oh. to, let, you have to let go and what the learning process is, because it, it's not conscious. It can't be. When you start to develop education and especially something physical, a certain magic happens in the brain that I have yet to see explained where the muscle memories start to come together and you end up having to just figure out how to relax. And that's one of the things I'm focusing on now as I analyze um, my own performance restrictions historically is I want to I want to feel that again in the right space, in the zone, as they would say. That's what that, that guy, Effortless Mastery, that's what he tries to talk about. So if you want to read an interesting book on that kind of subject matter, I recommend that. We're going out of here for now, but it's been obviously a good time. And I'll see you in the little fake green room after I turn the live stream off. But we'll say goodbye to each other proper. But hey, thanks everybody for listening, sticking around. There's some things that people said they wanted to know what... Uh, musician or band would you want to jam with if it was anybody stuff like that maybe go on your twitter and answer those questions okay <laughs> but uh, i i could never answer that question i have no idea but uh, that's a hard one that's a hard one but, uh, but anyway but man it's been a real pleasure it's been an honor and a really cool thing i miss being able to like be around you guys and in the same place and hopefully when the, when the whatever this purge is that's going on or <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Come visit. It's done. It's it's not that far from here, really. And obviously, if you ever find a reason to come to Nashville, for we have you covered and then some. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Love to come to Nashville. Great music there. All right, Brian. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to close this out, PJ. I'll talk to you one quick, one more quick second. If you want to check out all of the past episodes, just go to artfightpodcast.com for anybody that's new. And you can find all kinds of weird shit there. And thanks a lot, everybody.